Welcome to the Course of Action Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Clark. My book, Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm, is available now. Pick it up at all the major online retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million. For signed copies, please visit my website at jeffclarkofficial.com and drop me a message. Don't forget to leave a five-star review for the book, give the podcast a like, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thank you for your support. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Course of Action podcast. The silky smooth voice on the other end you're about to hear is none other than D. Scott Smith, motivational listener. Mr. Smith, welcome to the show. How are you? <laughs> Jeff. Well, of course, call me Scott. And what an honor and privilege to be on Course of Action. And uh, before we get started, I just want to say congratulations on the book. Here are oh, these thanks, truths. And uh, I understand. The big release is coming up, and you you've got a book signing going. So congratulations! That's a wow. that's a big a big milestone. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's definitely a definitely a journey, and I think you know a little bit about that journey with uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But um, mm -hmm. let's kick off first with who uh, Scott Smith is. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, so I am a. Uh, husband, father, and um, hopefully all around good guy. I um, grew up here in the Northwest. I was born in Southern California, but uh, my uncle had come to Oregon to, after he was out of the Marine Corps, he came up to Oregon to go to the university, the engineering school and run track. When my dad got out of the army, he was looking for a job and my uncle helped him get a job here in Oregon. And so we, we actually moved to Oregon on Flag Day in 1965. So I've spent most of my life here. And other than some time in the Air Force, this is where I choose to live. Okay, yeah. Oregon's a beautiful, beautiful place. I've been there once. Nice. Long time ago. My dad was a truck driver um, when I was younger. And I went on a big 10-day road trip. We left Oklahoma, basically went west. New Mexico, mm -hmm. Arizona, California, then up and around and kind of back down. So I've seen, I've driven through a mm -hmm. lot of the West and uh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful country. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you're there in, in Oklahoma, but those States uh, just to the East of you I always joke with the folks on the East coast. And I tell them, you know, we've got counties the size of your States. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not wrong. <laughs> You don't realize how big, uh, like big Texas is until like you actually start to drive through it. And then you realize my, wow, Oklahoma, when I complain about a four hour drive from, you know, where I'm at to the <laughs> Oklahoma border, like four hours doesn't get you very far in Texas. So it's like, yeah, the size of things is a lot different, especially if it was flat and you're just driving forever. So yeah, uh, I was in, uh, I was in San Angelo, a good, good fellow air force base Yep, and, uh, was, was driving home. And people say, where is San Angelo? I said, well, if you were going to take a compass and draw a circle around Texas, you'd put the point on San Angelo. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's dead in the middle of West Texas. <laughs> it and, is. Uh, and I remember it was an eight-hour drive from San Angelo to El Paso. So <laughs> yeah. that just gives people a scale. It's huge. Yeah. So... You, you said you did some time in the Air Force. Um, yeah. tell, how long were you in? Tell me a little bit about that. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was in uh, just uh, one one tour, short short time. I um, I started college, and uh, as you know, I mentioned my dad was was in the army, and so I was kind of uh, had had that kind of connection, and started college. And this is in the early '80s. And when I finished my first year, I was looking for a job for the summer to replenish the account and go back to school my next year. And it was tough. The economy was really bad. We talk about the great recession that we had here, mm-hmm. but it was really nothing compared to what was going on in the early 80s, the late 70s, early 80s, where mortgage rates were 13% and car loans were at 25%. Wow. So imagine going down to the dealership and picking up a new car and signing on a loan for 25%. Uh, unemployment was in double double digits and I couldn't find a job, but the Air Force was hiring. <laughs> and so uh, and so I joined and, uh, you know, you go through the uh, go through the test, go through the ASVAB. And uh, I scored well enough on there that they said, uh, would you be interested in language? So I grew up in a multilingual household with my grandparents having immigrated from Mexico. And so studied Spanish. I'd taken German, studied a little bit of Greek. So I had some sort of a basis for language. And so I took their language aptitude test and scored well enough on that where I was able to go into basic training knowing that my job was going to be as a linguist. Wow. And so I didn't know which language, but I knew at least that that's the direction I was going to go. So when you knew that, were you just praying that it was going to be one of the languages you were familiar with or or like, were you expecting curveball? (laughs) Well, uh, so for those guys who have been in, you understand there's the, there's a dream sheet, right? You fill out the dream sheet. (laughs) It's like, where would you like to be stationed? And it has no bearing on reality. You just fill in these things. Yeah. And now when, when my dad was in the army and I was, an infant, he was over in Germany. And uh, in fact, the, the story was, is that he was, his hobby was electronics. So he grew up in the fifties and, and all this electronics and stuff was, was new, new ground. And that's what he got trained in. So he went into the army, he volunteered and was going to be a, going to be an instructor at uh, one of the schools. He goes, then there was the Cuban missile crisis and we all got to go to Germany. So uh, we were, he was over in Germany and I thought, well, that'd be a great place. So everything that was on my dream sheet was like Northwestern Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and where do they send you? Well, what happened was I had the opportunity at, when I got out of basic training, we went into, uh, now this is the military. It was the language structural analysis course, right? Six weeks after basic training. Language structural analysis course. It was English class. We studied grammar because they oh. said you need to be able to understand and know what a noun and a verb is and so forth if you're going to study another language. So uh, <laughs> while I was in there, then I got my choice of of language. It actually gave me a choice. I could choose uh, Spanish, Vietnamese, Russian, Chinese, or Korean. And uh, so I thought it was interesting and. Uh, Spanish was was uh, seemed like it'd be the natural choice because I had already had uh, I already had studied it. I right. grew up around Spanish, 
but I chose based on where I would be stationed. And one of my goals with going to the Air Force was to live in a different country. So mm -hmm. if I studied Spanish, I would have actually been stuck on some rock out in the Florida Keys uh, listening to Castro's Cuba, right? <laughs> and if I took Vietnamese, I would have been stationed in Nebraska, of all places. Oh. And uh, put on a flight suit, get into a KC-135, yeah. and uh, get refueled a couple times and uh, spend time. And, and uh, I... Nebraska wasn't, you know, it's like the heart of the, of the U.S. It's not the foreign country. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then what you wanted. Yep. Russian, if I took Russian, would have put me somewhere in northern Alaska. And uh, that didn't sound that much fun. No. <laughs> if I took Chinese, I, I would have been stationed in Korea. So I chose Korean, which was probably the most difficult language that I probably could have selected. But it put me also in Korea. So uh, I went to language school, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, uh, studied Korean. And then uh, after short tech school at Goodfellow, then I went over to Osan Air Base in, um, in Korea. And it was much better because at least I had an understanding. You know, you cannot separate culture from language. Right. So when I studied the language, I learned a lot about the Korean culture. And so we got over early before uh, on our orders, you know, before we uh, had to check in so we could go to Seoul and hang out and kind of see folks and having at least an understanding of the language, being able to communicate really, really made that experience much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine learning Korean. I mean, I've heard that some of the more Asian centric you know, uh, dialects are some of the most difficult. So mm -hmm. uh, Mandarin, you know, Koreans, and, you know, those, I can't imagine trying to learn those, uh, let alone be in a foreign country for like the first time, you know, absorbing the yeah. culture and all that. But then your job was to basically study or spy on North Korea. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. It was uh, Kim Il-sung was the, the great leader of North Korea and uh, his son, uh, Kim Jong-il was the heir apparent. They called him the beloved leader. And uh, it was it was crazy times. It, yeah. Um, now, one of the things is, is that was a benefit for us is that our mission didn't change from wartime to peacetime. And so when we had team spirit and you got uh, all of the military forces converging on North Korea and doing exercises and guys putting on their chemical suits and gas masks and run <laughs> yep. around doing stuff. Uh, they said, uh, just put that next to you. Just, you got a job to do. Just, just do your job. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so we're, you know, there was, uh, there was uh, the tactical air group. And so they're basically tra tracking all of the flights that are going around in Korea. And then the uh, ground forces and those, uh, uh, the specialty in there was the tank guys. Uh, only the best, the best of the best could listen to the tank because they use throat mics, which makes it really hard to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and then multi-channel uh, radios. Those were, um, those were primarily the surface to air missiles. Okay. And they were always locking on to any U.S. 
plane that was flying around. Oh. And, uh, and so those guys also were really good. And in fact, you know, there's some things that you don't tell your mother when you get deployed and some <laughs> of these things. Um, of course, uh, one of the things that, that uh, we had to live with was that we were on this hill and it was over by the flight line. And so we've got our radio vans at the top and we're doing all our work and transcribing stuff. Um, and on that hill, it was, as I said, on the flight line. So half of it was hollowed out and that was the fuel dump. The other side of the hill was also hollowed out. That was the ammunition dump. So we would go through these exercises where you know, if we got invaded by North Korea, we had to destroy all the classified information. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm like one stray shell and we don't have to worry about. Right. That. You're, you're, they put you in the, literally in a mousetrap. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. It'll all be taken care of. There'd be nothing. There'd be nothing. to find. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. Not really but an the, issue. <laughs> yeah. Those, uh, uh, North Korea was running these, uh, uh, Soviet SS 20 surface to air missiles. Those are radar guided. And so whenever a plane would come out, uh, they'd lock on and they're tracking it. And so we're keeping track of those guys and, uh, of course, communicating with the, uh, with the pilot. There was a, an SR-70. This was right before I got out there. There was an SR-71 Blackbird flying out of the Clark Air Base in the Philippines, flying up the coast, doing all of their intelligence. And, you know, the, the stated speed in popular science of that thing is like Mach 4.5, right? I mean, it's just, it was a, a spacecraft mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Uh, so they're flying along and as usual, they locked radar onto it. North Koreans locked radar onto it. Well, for some reason, they actually fired one of those surface-to-air missiles at, at the Blackbird as it was flying by. So, of course, first of all, the weapons officer jams the heck out of that thing. Uh, but what was funny was it actually flew faster than the missile. It couldn't keep up. And so it ran out of fuel and just fell into the ocean. Wow. But I got to talk to the guys that were on the radios that day when that happened. And this is, you know, it's uh, the, the military, right? Hours of boredom followed by moments of panic. <laughs> well, here you are on the radio and it's just this and it's that and it's normal things and it's you know nothing you're looking for stuff and you're recording things and it's all boring and all of a sudden they lock on oh wait a minute you know what's going on they just fired (laughs) wow those guys were just yeah it's real life this is this is real life and uh, one of the things that that happened of course korea there was no there's there's no peace right they just had a ceasefire the armistice right so uh, technically, it's still a war zone. It is a uh, unaccompanied tour when you're there. So you don't get to bring your family. Uh, and so again, this is in the early 80s. So uh, things have changed a lot since those days. But it was still considered a war zone. And although um, I, 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 the VFW, the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, to me, this is for those guys that were deployed in the combat zones, mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan, the Mideast, and so forth. And, you know, I have a friend that, that uh, we were in high school together. We joined about the same time. And he stayed in. He retired uh, in light infantry. He retired actually in Iraq as a major. 
Wow. Is uh, having gone through airborne school and ranger school and walked across Somalia. He still carries a piece of shrapnel in his butt from that day. Wow. Um, Jeez. But, um, but it did qualify me f- uh, for the VFW. And uh, so I pay my, my annual dues because uh, if an organization like that can help one of those veterans, I am more than happy to support uh, VFW and all the work that they do. That's very cool. I've never met somebody who spied on North Korea. I think that's just uh, the coolest thing in the world. And your story about the Blackbird, I'm going to share that one. That blows my mind. That's I mean, crazy. That is crazy. But it just tells you like how how defensive North Korea was. Like nobody would do that now. Like Russia wouldn't dare do that mm-hmm. unless they were seriously prepared to go to full blown war. You know, uh, China probably wouldn't do it either unless because they know what kind of, you know, conflict it would kick off. I mean, World War Three, more than likely. But, you know, the fact that North Korea was willing to do that, you know, what, 30 years ago? Like, oh, it's just crazy. It's it's so crazy. And there's so many stories Uh, It Panmunjom. And that's the that's the place that's right on the DMZ. And there's a building there where the North and the South meet to discuss stuff. And sometimes you wonder, is the world run by a bunch of nine-year-olds? Because (laughs) there's like a literal line painted down the middle of that room. There's a table and that's your side. This is our side. And when we were there, there was this, this, the story was the, they were, they were having these meetings. And so each country put a little flag on a block, you know, on the, their side. So they got the North Korean flag, South Korean flag. So they come in for one of the meetings and the North Koreans had put a little block of wood under their flag. So it was a little bit higher. <laughs> so then the next day, the, you know, the South Koreans put two blocks of wood under theirs. Oh, wow. Right. And so they build these little Jenga towers, right? Just, <laughs> oh. and then, and then uh, one night, uh, apparently the North Koreans came in and they had like these wooden office chairs and they came in and they, they saw it off like a quarter inch of the legs on all of the chairs. Right. So they were sitting a little bit lower <laughs> Then the next night they came in and cut another quarter inch off. Right. So they're just these weird, th- you know, like, is this a bunch of nine year olds? Cause come that's, on. That's like a whole new <laughs> level of context to the, north and south korea dynamic like that's almost it's almost funny i know it's a it was a war and the tensions are high but like that kind of stuff is like it's almost funny could you imagine if we did that like canada (laughs) like that was our relationship with canada we had a building right there on the border a line was drawn their flag was there ours was there but instead of like a little tiny one we just had this massive american flag hanging on the wall like and then they get a bigger and we get you know pretty soon right yeah wow (laughs) wow that's crazy it is a crazy world there yeah north korea it's uh it's i mean it really is sad there was uh again right before i got there there was a north korean mig pilot that defected and uh he actually was on final approach into the kimpo international airport uh before they picked him up on radar and so he's getting ready to land and of course all pandemonium breaks loose one of the things was they asked him why did you defect from north korea well, he's a pilot, right? I mean, that's an elite role within within the country. 
And so he's afforded privileges. But of course, there's a lot of propaganda, but there's also rumors. So the propaganda was that the imperialist Americans had completely suppressed South Korea and that they were still living in the ruins from the Korean War. Well, there's rumors, right? And yeah. so here's this, this pilot, and he's at the beach in North Korea, and some garbage washes up. And it's a little ramen wrapper, like Top Ramen. Mm-hmm. It's a packaged noodle wrapper that, that comes up. And he says, you know, uh, I'm a pilot. I'm treated really well. We don't have packaged noodles in North Korea. You cannot buy Top Ramen type noodles. And so he thought, you know, the, the, some of the rumors must be true. And so he defected because of that. A package of ramen, an empty package of ramen. Garbage. Yeah. Convinced this guy to defect. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's bold. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears for a second and let's talk about flash forwarding after your military days and spying Mm -hmm. on North Korea and all the awesome stories that I'd love to just keep talking about, but let's talk about, you were at a furniture company, uh, upholster doing upholstery, right. Mm-hmm. Um, in an internship and then you, got well, a... I was, a yeah, I was a interim general manager. So, okay. um, yeah. So after college or so after I got out of the air force, uh, got married, went back to college. My undergraduate was, uh, uh, in business and finance and then, uh, got into banking uh, and then actually spent time in high tech doing um, supply chain operations for Hewlett Packard and then got recruited into, um, uh, uh, gosh, well, no, I left Hewlett Packard and went into a small manufacturing company, uh, then an agricultural company. And then uh, I spent then six months as interim general manager for an upholstered furniture company where we manufactured primarily for Ikea. Okay. So about 90, 95% of what we put out went to Ikea. Mm. So, but you weren't there long because eventually you got a referral lead from a radio station, correct? Well, what happened? Yeah. So it was a, it was a short-term gig. I was, is interim general manager. We had about 150 employees and as I said, putting out mostly Ikea furniture. And my goal was really the, the company had gone through a lot of transitions and Ikea was going to come in and take over the day-to-day management. And so I was there really to set up the systems and the processes okay. and the tracking uh, so that, that they could come in and, and run that. So when that ended, I was really looking, you know, what's the next, what's my next gig? Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine was on the board with the radio station and she said, you know, we just uh, called just got out of our board meeting and our general manager says we need help with social media. Now, when I was at the agricultural company, we had a, it was a small company and I guess it was a turnaround while I was there. Uh, so I came in as CEO to, uh, there's ownership issues, there's cash flow issues, staffing, uh, products. And so develop new products and also had to promote the company without a budget, without a marketing budget. So this is back, uh, this is like, uh, 2010 and social media was fairly new as far as, uh, it was, we were early in the days of web 2.0. And mm-hmm. so it was a, a chance to 
really learn that as a tool for promotion. And so we were, we were actually doing online webinars, teaching people um, back then. And uh, so today's world is not, not significantly different there, but I learned how to use social media to promote. So I finished up with the furniture company. The radio station general manager said, you know, we need help with social media. And so they hired me as a contractor to do digital marketing for them. And it, it, within a month, there were uh, three companies that were paying me to do digital marketing. So I told my wife, I guess it's a business now. Right. Let it, let the, let the money come to you and, and run with it. Yeah. So, yeah, so, absolutely. so then you're in radio <clears throat> flash forward to now you have sure. a program called the PIP method. Tell us mm -hmm. about the PIP method and how you designed it and what that's kind of for. Yeah. So um, PIP stands for um, uh, uh, publish, instruct, and promote. And, uh, and, and I love this, that, that you've written a book and, you know, I'm, I'm listening to, to some of your launch stuff uh, on the podcast and how you have encouraged people to write a book. Mm -hmm. And that's really what, that's really what the PIP is all about. It's about uh, taking advantage of the fact that this is the greatest time ever to be alive. Because if you want to have a radio show, then here we are on the podcast. We're you know, right. be able to broadcast out uh, video. Obviously, there's tons of opportunities there. Uh, and publishing. You can write a book. And so the only barrier to entry is just your willingness to participate. Uh, so yeah, if you want to write a book, you can write a book. Now, the traditional way of writing a book was to, to go through a traditional publisher. Mm -hmm. And uh, publishers are very busy. And there is a lot of authors or potential authors out there. So they won't speak directly to an author. You can't pitch your book directly to them. You have to go to a literary agent. Yep. And, uh, and so the time frame is something like this. It might take you a year to find a, a, an agent that will represent you. Then that agent will probably take another year pitching your book to find a publisher that's willing to, to take your work on. And once they do that and you've signed the agreements, it'll probably take another two years for them to actually go through all the process, edits, uh, cover design, layout, uh, and finally your book is published. So this is four years. And depending on the subject matter, that's fine. That's a, that's, uh, there's nothing wrong with going that route. Mm -hmm. uh, but today, self-publishing is a viable option. In fact, some of, the, some of the greatest authors out there, like Mark Schaefer, who has written a number of books on marketing, self-published because that's the, the control was there mm -hmm. and he's able to get his material out in a timely manner. Right. So publish, instruct, and promote. Now uh, the beautiful thing is, is that uh, Amazon and I'll just tell people, you can go to kdp.amazon.com, Kindle direct publishing, set up an account. You download the, the Kindle create program, write your book in word, upload it into the Kindle create program, uh, format it, put a cover with it, hit publish, all for free. You can be a published author in in 
with just those steps. So uh, part of really what I'm saying is, is on the published side, then uh, take what you have, write it out, get uh, obviously find an editor, get somebody to proofread it, edit it, help you out. Uh, don't rely just on your own eyes. Yeah. But but don't be intimidated by the process. Mm-hmm. So uh, the program that I teach, and I, I, I published this in a book called Influence, Creation of Credibility. And it was, uh, this was my fourth, fourth book. The first book that I published uh, was, was in 2018. And then uh, uh, followed up with a second book, a third, fourth. And I have one that is a, a joint book. And so here's the deal. We're not talking about a 250 word uh, book. We're talking about something that is short and solves one problem for one person, for one, uh, one, yeah, basically one person for that, for that ideal customer that you have. So I'm Mm -hmm. talking for coaches, consultants, business owners, uh, anybody that has anything to say, but don't think you've got to create this long title. What we're really talking about is short form publishing 20 to 40 pages and uh and it's and it's about what you could talk about as an expert say in a 40 to 60 minute presentation okay you're basically just putting it into book format correct so that's for those listening book publishing can be that simple um i'm telling you right now and you can you can uh jump in whatever you want to scott um when you work with a publisher, no matter how big or small, and mine's kind of a smaller one, a hybrid between traditional and, and a small print, but you know, I still, I still had to pay for the editor. So if you're worried about incurring that cost in self-publishing, I'm telling you, you're going to have to incur it anyway. Um, you know, you're going to have to find marketing and I had to help pay for some marketing with the publisher. They pay for some and I paid for some. So that's a cost you're going to have to incur anyway. So you have some creative freedom. So if you take your time, follow some of these methods, like what Scott has and understand that you are going to have to spend some money to make some money. You then have the creative control. So find an editor that works really well with you that you vibe with, do interviews, you know, interview some people and find out, give them a, you know, 10 pages and say, edit it. Let me see what you do. And, you know, take your time and do it because some of the things that you might be afraid of doing or investing in, you're going to have to do anyway. They're mm-hmm. not going to let you not do it. I mean, my publisher basically said, you can find an editor and pay them or we'll find you an editor and you're still going to pay them, <laughs> you know? So like, okay. Yeah. You know, I just kind of, I kind of went with a couple of recommendations they had and, and I did some interviews and then, we, and then I picked one, but mm-hmm. it was still my cost. So Correct. it's a great option. And I know, yeah. I know a fiction author, his name is David Darling and he's out there right now. He's like on his third or fourth self-published book on Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, doing pretty well, you know, and I think it is, like you said, it's a very valuable, it's a very viable option to do right. for people today you know, who absolutely don't need to be discouraged by the traditional publishing route because there is, there's, there's every time there's a conference or something like that, there's hundreds of people 
standing in line ready to pitch their books to the agents that do show up. And the only mm -hmm. way they get through is to talk to an agent, you know, and it, that's just one day, you know, imagine the amount of emails and things like that they get. And I don't want to discourage anybody from going that route, but well, in, in other what we're talking about is, is get some proof out there. Right. So if you're an expert on a subject, mm -hmm. it's easy. It, all the coaches and consultants, experts that I know, can easily talk for 40 minutes to an hour on a topic that they're an expert in. So record it. There you go. You have your first book. Edit it, publish it. And, and, and so this process and the book, and you can find it on Amazon, Influence, Creation of Credibility, it's publish, publish, not just write, but publish a book, online course, and webinar in 12 weeks or less. And so on my website, people can go, they can sign up. There's a free course uh, that that I've got that'll that'll take them through the process. But the, the key is getting started. And the process becomes addictive. So what happens is, is pe as people go through and they write it, their first book, and we're going to do just the first book, 20 to 40 pages, very simple. Before they're finished doing the first one, They've already got their idea for the second one mm -hmm. and the third. And when I was in college, my international finance professor, Dr. Stonehill, Arthur Stonehill, he taught us from the textbook that he wrote. And when he, when he was mentoring junior professors, he said, when you're doing your research in, in academics, it's publish or perish, they have to do research and publish these, these articles. He goes, when you're getting your research done, make sure that you're researching the chapters in your book. So chapter one, chapter two, and so forth. And so that at some point, you're, you're going to just compile that and then publish it as one textbook. And this is, the rec this is what I recommend as well. Look, you have one, solve one problem. Because so many business books, and I've got shelf behind me, I've got, I'm surrounded by business books. Many of them I haven't read. Uh, and if I have read them, uh, and we're talking big books, right? Mm -hmm. 200 pages, 250, 300 pages. Um, there was a book that came out about podcasting, and it's 300 pages on how to get started with a podcast. Well, I mean, really? It's a lot of information. Um, but if it, I'll tell you what, if it's 40 pages, if it's 20 pages, you can sit down in one reading. And I can go, oh, this is what I need to start a podcast. I do this, I do this, I do this. It's got a checklist and I can actually implement it. One thing, just give me one thing that I can actually do. Now, um, that's not to say you're going to be limited. Uh, let's say it's podcasting, how to start your podcast. Then you do a next volume, how to market your podcast. Then you do another one, how to get guests on your podcast. Then you do another one. Now, once you've got uh, five or six of these, you can compile them into one book and you can do print on, print on demand with Amazon for the physical books. And so uh, we're not talking that you're limited to eBooks, but uh, just to, just, uh, it's interesting because people think, Scott, come on. I mean, really, what's the value in a short form published book? 20 pages. So look up Barbara Carnes, K-A-R-N-E-S, Barbara Carnes. She's an expert 
in hospice, so end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. So starting back in 1985, she started publishing what we would call pamphlets. And you can go to Amazon, and you can, you can look up Barbara Carnes. You can find her pamphlets. She's got a number of them. They're like 15 pages. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone that's longer than 30 pages. Uh, but her most popular book on Amazon, 15 pages, sells for $7.99. Since 1985, she has sold over 35 million copies. Wow. So you tell okay. me, solving one problem for somebody where they can get it, read it, and implement it, 35 yeah. million copies. Wow. That's a good day. Oh, yeah. I mean, and especially now with the way social media works, we want this society today wants instant entertainment and kind of gratification, you know, that satisfaction. We want it right now. Boom. That's why we scroll. And that's why those platforms are designed to scroll because mm -hmm. that's they want to just keep showing you information, showing you things. And then you stay on the platform and you're just kind of addicted and. You know, I think our attention spans have changed because of, you know, the way media works now. And, um, you know, I think it's it's hard to carry on for a long period of time, even, you know, on podcasts, on videos. I mean, they mm -hmm. say on like TikTok and stuff like that, you know, if you do more than a 15 second video, you've lost people. It's like, <laughs> wow, right. wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, we're we're and we're Netflix folks, right? I mean, yeah. we want things on our schedule. Yeah. The old days of. Tuning in Wednesday night at eight o'clock isn't going to happen anymore. Yeah, that's going, that's really going away. I mean, so many people are cutting the cable cord mm -hmm. and going over to, I mean, I, we did, we don't have cable. I have Netflix, right. Hulu, I have all those platforms and we watch things when we want to. Exactly. And same thing with podcasts. I tune into podcasts, you know, when I want to, I, I know when some of my favorite ones release right. on a weekly basis or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't necessarily tune in that day unless I have time, but I know, you know, so it's there mm -hmm. for my convenience. And I think as, you know, to your point in, in your method in your 12 week program and what you can do is, you know, it's, it's a convenience thing. You're catering kind of to the convenience right. and saying, here it is. If you want it, it's here for the taking. And I love that. And so you told me this, it was during the pandemic when LinkedIn was exploding and everybody was on LinkedIn and everybody was a webinar guru and a recruiter and all this stuff. And somebody told me that like, if you're writing a LinkedIn post, you're writing a blog post, you're mm -hmm. writing a podcast episode. Uh, and they said a couple other things. And I was like, that's genius. Off of one post, one LinkedIn mm -hmm. post, I right. have all these other things. Why am I not doing that? You know, and, exactly, exactly. And, and your method is that solution as well as saying, if you're writing right. anything at all, even a social mm -hmm. media post, you're making a short format that can build into something longer. And, and like you said, you could write one book on this, one book on that. And then later on a massive, a massive book. And, you know, to me, for me personally, I would rather buy a e-reader or ebook for five ninety nine, seven ninety nine over one subject. I can flip through the thirty to fifty pages. I get what I need, mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody saying, "Here is you know the same book. It's a paper copy for the same price." <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. 
where's the value at, you know, um, and what do I need right now? So I think the, uh, the method in the ebook is kind of a unique thing, but tell me, how did you come up with it? Yeah. So it, it was really the, the first book that I published was in 2018, Motivational Listener, Be Interesting by Being Interested, A Practical Guide to Being Successful at Business Networking Events, right? So, uh, and that actually started as a talk that I gave at the Social Media Summit in Dublin, Ireland in uh, 2016. Uh, the, the topic there was uh, the psychology and physiology of relationships. And what, so what was really interesting was I went through and took the academic research and proved that the relationships that we create digitally, like this online, uh, can be just as strong as those that we create face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, for the last two plus years, uh, we've proven that to be true. If as people have connected online and built friendships and built businesses uh, just digitally, people they've never met face to face. Um, so I, I gave that talk in 2016. And then I turned that into an online course. And then I was booked to speak to the Project Management Institute uh, for the state of Oregon for their annual conference. And I thought, well, this is a good reason to have a book. And so then I went through and took my notes, formatted into a book and published it. And so that was the, that was the genesis of that, of that first book. So then I, I learned the process. Now, I also became an Amazon influencer, which means I can go live on video right into Amazon. So amazon.com slash live. And a lot of people are talking about the electronics or makeup or clothing or, or other. It's more like a shopping club. I said, you know, I know a lot of people who've written books. And so we'll do author interviews uh, mm -hmm. on Amazon. And so one of the things that I had learned with writing my first book was that Amazon is, of course, the world's largest book reseller. So if you're a published author, you, you have to be on Amazon. Yeah, it's, you do. it's just part of the deal. But when Amazon, if you're a coach or a consultant, you're always trying to grow your email list, grow your connections. But when you sell a book on Amazon, they don't tell you who bought the book. They don't give you their email address. So now what do you do? Well, this is the instruct part of the PIP program. So publish, instruct. So we're talking about solve one problem for your ideal customer. Give them something. This is like the baker who gives you one cookie, hoping you'll love it and buy the dozen. So in your book, we put links, hyperlinks in the book. And this is the beautiful thing about Kindle. They can just tap that and go right to say your website or to a course. Mm. And you say, look, I've got exclusive content that helps flesh out these ideas. Look, here's the problem that we solved. And here's how, here's how you do it. Now let's actually go implement that click. And then they can go and there we set up uh, a video course. Ideally, there's three videos. Uh, the first one sets up and says, here's what the problem is. Here's how terrible life is. Uh, because you have this problem, here's how wonderful life will be after you have that problem. The second video, you lay out, here's what you need to do. And it could be an inventory or a checklist or some sort of a process that they do. And then the third is interpretation. If you got this result, here's what it means. Here's what you do, right? You solve for that. 
Now, what happens is, is you're connecting your face and your voice with solving a problem for them. Mm. And you're also saying, by the way, this is one of the many problems that I solve as a coach, a consultant, so forth, as an expert in this area. Here's how you get a hold of me. But when they sign up for that course, it's what we call gated content, which means they have to provide their email to get access to it. But it's free, right? You're, you're not charging them for it. They bought the book. They bought the book. You get the course for free. In exchange, you get their email. You have now grown your list. So publish, instruct, and promote. And promote is the webinar. Now, uh, you can do the webinar and you can host it on your website. There's other places that you can do it. And a lot of this stuff is for free. And in fact, I teach people how to set up a website for free. You don't have to pay anything uh, and get it going and put all of your stuff right there, including your gated content. So uh, the people that I work with directly in my program, then I go as a part of that, I, I go live with them on Amazon. And most authors don't get that opportunity to speak directly to the audience on Amazon. And it creates a permanent video that's housed there. I also give them the full MP4 so they can edit it, put it on their book page, uh, author page, website, social media, promotion, everything. They have, they have full reign to do that. Mm. So that's the promotion part of it. And of course, it's all pointing to buy the book, to click on the course, to add, to, uh, to get that no like, and trust factor going and get you connected up with them. Wow. So if you are in the business of solving a problem, regardless of what it is, uh, Scott Smith is your guy. He is a motivational listener. He has an awesome PIP method, uh, publish, instruct, and promote 12 weeks to really kicking off um, a new side hustle, maybe even a new career. Um, and it's well worth the time and the listen for sure. Um, Scott, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having or coming on and, and inviting me on to Amazon, which we're going to do here in a oh, couple of weeks. Yeah. And, I look um, forward to, I look forward to that and, and helping other people become authors because uh, now that you have your book, the next time that you get introduced uh, on a podcast or a, a speaking gig when you're the the event host says, and our next speaker is the author of Hear These Truths, Jeff Clark. Right? Yeah, that's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, it's it's very cool. It's very humbling too. Um, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, thank you for coming on. Before we go, I want you to tell everybody where they can go get more mm -hmm. information and find out more about you. Social links, everything. Yeah, absolutely. So the easy thing is uh, dscottsmith.com uh, and uh, d is in Dennis, scottsmith.com. And you can go to my website. There is an opportunity to down or to connect up for the free course, uh, 12 week course that uh, will take people through the process. I do have a paid mastermind that is available if people want uh, the support and encouragement of peer mentoring, which of course I encourage, uh, but the free course is fine. It will take you through, it'll give you the outline for your book, webinar, everything uh, for a course, give you all the tools that you need. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash D Scott Smith, uh, email scott at dscottsmith.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, 
and uh, Instagram, whatever works for you. I am happy to communicate that way. Awesome. And thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll all see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.